Good morning. Welcome to Parkway Church. My name is uh, Jeff, one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open. As we just read, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 today. And as you're turning there, I want to take a bit of a survey. Raise your hand if you know who Michael Fagan is. Michael Fagan. Not many of us. Well, if you're up to date on the Netflix miniseries, The Crown, you might remember Michael Fagan as the man who not once but twice broke into Buckingham Palace, which sounds like it should be somewhat difficult, but it turns out it's apparently not that hard. He just had to hop a fence and climb through an unlocked window. It's actually a really great story. Uh, June 1982, Fagan breaks in. He wanders around eating cheese and crackers and uh, drinks a half a bottle of wine. He sits on uh, the throne for a little bit and uh, just kind of stares and then he leaves. Literally exactly what I would have done. And, uh, and then a month later, he breaks in yet again to Buckingham Palace. And uh, this time he makes it all the way to the queen's bedroom where she happens to be sleeping. He opens up her curtains, he wakes her up, and he has a brief conversation with her. Now, what's the big deal? Why is that so interesting? After all, people break into homes every day. In fact, in the US, a home is broken into about every 30 seconds. So since I began speaking, a couple of houses have been broken into. So why is Fagan's story so fascinating? Well, because Buckingham Palace isn't like most homes. For instance, my house, this may surprise you, but I don't have palace guards. I don't have this huge wrought iron fence. My HOA doesn't even provide a pool, much less armed security. So if someone wants to break into my house, it's probably fairly easy. You don't have to scale a fence. You don't have to swim a moat. You don't have to avoid my pet tiger or something like that. You, you just have to make it past me and my own version of armed security. So what makes Fagan's story, though, so interesting and so incredible and unbelievable isn't just that he broke into a house but that he broke into the home of the sovereign ruler of the United Kingdom. And that's kind of a big deal. And that relates to our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians. The past two weeks, we've explored this metaphor of the church as being a building, but not just any building, not like a mall or, uh, or like your private residence or like a Whataburger or something like that, but rather the residence of the sovereign God and king of the universe. So it's a really big deal to defile it or to destroy it. And that's what our passage is about today. So let's pray and then we'll find out what exactly the text says regarding this. Ask you first just to pray for yourself. As you come in, maybe you're, uh, you're distracted. Maybe you've had a, a hard, rough week or a hard weekend or you have something coming up and, uh, and so maybe your attention is a bit divided or your affections are divided. Pray for yourself and then pray a similar prayer for those around you, whether they are friends or family or complete strangers, that the Lord would give us collectively a, a heart to hear and to heed his word this morning. And then lastly, will you pray for me for boldness and for uh, faithfulness? So Father, we confess what we just sang, that you're good, that all that you do is good. You're a good father who gives good gifts to your children. And of the gifts that you've given us, obviously the greatest gift is your son. 
But in addition to that, you've given us your spirit, even as we see in our text this morning, and you've given us scripture. And so we pray that your spirit would open our eyes, that we might read scripture and see the glory of your son. We pray these things in his name, amen. Let's begin in uh, verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse 16, which says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So let's begin with this first phrase, do you not know? Now this is actually the first of 10 such rhetorical questions in this letter. I'm gonna read through these quickly so that you can see just how prevalent this is in 1 Corinthians, this, this phrase, do you not know? 1 Corinthians 5, 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 1 Corinthians 6, 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 6, 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, 6.15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 6.16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? 6.19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 9.13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? And then 9.24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. And so these are all rhetorical questions. And Paul uses them kind of as this mild sort of rebuke. In other words, you should know these things, but you're acting like you don't know them. There's this hint of sarcasm in this language, in this rhetorical device. It's like the time in my uh, early 20s, I was talking to a guy uh, in the office where I worked, and I put my coffee mug in the microwave for a little warm-up. The problem was that my mug was stainless steel. So right before I pressed the button, my buddy said something to the effect of, you moron, don't you know that you can't microwave metal? Of course I knew that. And yet here I was about to start a fire or whatever it is. I don't know exactly why you can't put metal into a microwave. I just know that you can't. And, uh, and so, of course, I knew that. And yet in the moment, I wasn't acting on that knowledge. And that's what Paul is kind of doing here. He's offering this rebuke to the Corinthians for failing to live in light of the implications of what they should know. And by the way, Paul knows that they should know this because he had labored there in Corinth for 18 months when he planted the church. In other words, these are things he's already taught them and he knows that firsthand. So what should they have known? Well, here in the context, they should have known that they are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in them. Now let's begin, before we really unwrap what this means, let's begin by talking about a couple of things that this passage is not about. First, this is not about you as an individual. But this is rather about the corporate body of the church. The you mentioned here isn't singular. This isn't about how God's spirit dwells in you individually. It is about how God's spirit dwells in us collectively. The you mentioned here isn't singular, but plural in Greek. In a lot of languages, you can actually show whether it is plural or singular, uh, the pronoun on the basis of the language. And so that's the case in Greek. It's not the case in English, but it is the case in Texan, right? In Texas, we would say y'all, all right? Don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple is how we would uh, translate this. By the way, also notice that it doesn't say, don't you know that y'all are God's temples, plural. Y'all, plural, are God's temple, singular. That's the first thing that this is not about. This is not about you as an individual. Second, 
This is not, this passage is not about how you shouldn't eat fast food or you shouldn't get tattoos or you shouldn't smoke cigars or you shouldn't drink caffeine because your body is a temple. Remember, this isn't about your individual body, rather this is about the corporate body of the church. Interestingly enough, when we get to chapter six, we'll see a very similar phrase that is actually more concerned with the question of our individual lives and our individual bodies and so forth. First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We read this earlier, but I'll read it again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We'll get to that text in a few weeks, but our passage this morning isn't about how you individually or your physical body, but us corporately. It's about not the physical body of a Christian, but the spiritual body of the church, all right? Does God's spirit dwell in you individually? Yes. Does God care what you do with your body? Yes. Are either of those things what this passage is about? No, absolutely not. So what is the point? Well, this is now the third metaphor, the third image that Paul has used for the church in the past few verses. He said that the church is a field or a garden in verses six through nine. And then in, uh, he turns in verse nine and through 15, he describes the church as a building. And now he kind of specifies what type of building it is by using this imagery of a temple. So let's talk about temples for a second. When we think of temples today, you probably, or you might think at least, of ancient structures like Angkor Wat in, uh, in Cambodia or some Buddhist shrine in Japan or something like that. But if you were a first century resident of Corinth, you would have thought of one of two things. If you were a Gentile, you would have thought of the myriad pagan temples that uh, dotted the empire. They were everywhere. Every city had at least one. Temples were like the Starbucks or the McDonald's of the ancient world. They're everywhere. But if you were a Jew, on the other hand, you would have thought not primarily of those various temples that you would see every day, but rather of one particular temple. That is the temple that is in what city? Jerusalem, right? The historic temple, the temple of Solomon and so forth. And so to really understand the imagery here, we need to back up. You need to actually back up all the way to the beginning to creation. So in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, God creates a garden. And then when you read about that garden, if you're familiar with the subsequent idea of a temple and the imagery of a temple, you would instantly see in the garden imagery temple imagery as well. For example, in most ancient temples, there was this image of a god. You would go into the temple and you would see an image of a god, a statue or an idol. Now, Yahweh can't be represented with some sort of idol or a statue, but there is a, quote, image of God placed in the garden given that man is created as the image of God. So there's an image of God in the garden, just like there's an image in most temples. Second, what happens in that garden? Well, God and man dwell together. If you remember the story, Adam and Eve walked with God and communed with God. And so Eden is the place where heaven and earth overlap, all right? As that song goes, heaven is a place on earth, there in Eden. And so God dwells among men. Again, that is temple imagery. A temple is a place where God's presence is said to uniquely dwell. God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, but the temple is a particularly holy place because God's presence uniquely dwells 
there. That's kind of the idea of holy places in general. Think about holy mountains like Mount Sinai or Zion or Fuji in Japan or Olympus in Greece or Kilimanjaro from that song by Toto. Why are mountains considered to be holy in very, uh, various religions? Well, because they are where heaven meets earth, right? A mountain is literally where the earth juts up into the heavens. And so it's seen as this sort of imagery of, uh, of where the heavens meets the earth and where God dwells among men. So that's the significance of holy places. It's a place where heaven meets earth, where they overlap and where God dwells among man. So that's the second way that the garden imagery is going to allude to the temple. A third way is what was Adam's task? What was his responsibility? What was his work in the garden? Well, he was told to do two things, to work it and to keep it. What's really interesting is if you continue to read the Bible, those two verbs are then used of the priest's in the temple. Those are the same responsibilities that are given to the priests in the temple, to work it and to keep it. And then fourth, when the temple in Jerusalem is eventually going to be built, what is the imagery? What is the ornamentation? What is the decoration? Well, it's adorned with carvings of trees and flowers and cherubim, all of which are associated, again, with the garden. And there's all kinds of other reasons that you would see this temple imagery in the garden there. For all these reasons and more, if you're an Israelite, if you're familiar with the temple in Jerusalem, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you think that garden is a temple, and you're supposed to think about that. But there is an aspect of temples that's actually missing from the garden, and that is sacrifice. In most temples, sacrifices are offered, but not originally in Eden, because there is no need for a sacrifice. A sacrifice isn't necessary. But then, you're gonna have sin introduced into the world through the fall, and sin defiles the garden. And a holy God can't dwell among his people, which is the whole imagery of a temple. Uh, a holy God can't dwell among sinful humans without some sort of sacrifice and cleansing. So you see, even there, God sacrifices an animal and he covers mankind. He covers Adam and Eve. Now fast forward hundreds of years. Fast forward past Noah and Abraham. Fast forward all the way to Moses and to the story of the Exodus. As Israel is being led out of slavery in Egypt, they're being led into the promised land. God dwells among them in the form of a tabernacle. It functions as this portable sort of temple. It's kind of the first mobile home, if you will. And the tent this tent functions as the place where God's presence was particularly manifest to Israel. And that worked through the period of the judges and Saul and even King David. But then David's son, Solomon, builds a more permanent dwelling place for God in the temple there in Jerusalem. And as mentioned, that temple represented the garden with trees and flowers and cherubim and, a, and it's built on a mountain, Mount Zion. So God dwelt among his people in this place in a particularly uh, strong, unique, sort of singular way. And so this is the place where heaven and earth overlapped, except the presence was mediated. It wasn't immediate, it wasn't perfect, it wasn't complete, it wasn't full, it wasn't consummate. Not everyone could actually approach God. In fact, only one man could enter the most holy place, 
and he could only do so once a year, and he could only do so through elaborate ritual and sacrifice. So this really wasn't a long-term solution. In other words, there was always this shelf life, if you will, on the temple and this entire sacrificial system. And that shelf life was manifest first when Solomon's temple was destroyed. Babylon carries Judah into exile around 587, 586 BC. So during this time of exile, Israel, Israel's waiting, they're longing, they're hoping for this day in which God would once again dwell among his people. Now about 50 years later, after the, the destruction of the temple, a group of exiles return, they begin to rebuild the temple, and then in the first century, King Herod is going to expand it, he's gonna beautify it, he's going to restore it. So we might then think, as we're reading the New Testament, we might think that God's glory is returned, that, that the anticipation is over, and that this temple will be where God will perpetually dwell among men, where God will meet with man, where man will meet with God. But this rebuilt physical structure in Jerusalem doesn't actually fulfill the hope and the angst and the expectation of God's people. Why not? Well, there's a number of reasons. I'll just give you a couple. First, because God is omnipresent. He can't be contained by a building. As Acts says, he doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. And second, because temple sacrifices don't quite cut it. The blood of uh, bulls and goats don't actually suffice to atone for sin. So this building made by, hand, by hands isn't going to suffice. The physical structure of the temple, it works as a metaphor, as an image, as a foreshadowing, but something bigger, something stronger, something better is necessary to actually fulfill this eschatological expectation of God's people for an ultimate problem, uh, ultimate solution to the problem of sin and to the ultimate reward of dwelling with God. So with all of that in mind, Jesus arrives on the scene and he says things like, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Not referring to Herod's temple there in Jerusalem, but rather to his own body. And he says in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, which is next to blasphemous if he isn't who he truly says. In other words, Jesus himself is now fulfilling all of this imagery of the temple. He is the true image of the invisible God. He is the place where heaven and earth overlap. He is the place where God dwells among men because he himself is both fully God and fully man. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in him and he is the sacrifice that ex expiates sin and propitiates God's wrath. So this is sort of the second imagery of the temple in scripture. The temple concept moves from a place to a person, all right? But then there's a third use of the, the, the imagery of the temple as well as we move from the gospels into the epistles. And that imagery of the temple is stretched yet again from Christ's physical body to the spiritual body of Christ, which is the church, the people of God. And that's how Paul is using the metaphor here in 1 Corinthians chapter three. Paul writes that we ourselves, the church body, are the temple of God that we collectively are the dwelling place of God, which is what by definition makes us the temple. That is what a temple is, where God dwells among men. Now when we read this today, maybe it isn't all that novel. If you've grown up in church, you're familiar with this imagery of being compared to the temple before. 
You've heard this, the temple applied to the church, and yet in Paul's day, this is somewhat radical, especially because this letter was written about 15 years or so before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD. So the fact that a Jew would say that God dwells somewhere other than that building which is still standing is incredibly significant. What Paul's saying is to the Christian, the actual physical temple that's there until 70 AD, that's there when he writes 1 Corinthians, to the Christian, the actual physical temple is kind of like Blockbuster is today, right? It's irrelevant, it's obsolete. But the church is the new temple. It's the universal temple, not this localized sort of representation. If the, if the Jerusalem temple is like Blockbuster, the church is like Netflix, right? This universal, this ubiquitous extension of the body of Christ. Now why is it so important that we grasp our identity as the temple? The reason is because our ethic, our our, our ethic of the gospel is that we are to become who we already are. We've talked about this a number of times here at Parkway. We are to become who we already are. We don't become the temple by acting holy, by cleansing ourselves and putting on our fine linen and so forth. We don't become the temple by acting holy. Rather, we act holy because we are already declared to be holy. We become holy when we reflect upon our pre-established identity as the temple. Our identity comes first, and then our actions, our ethics, our behavior, our morality flows out of that. That's the gospel. If you get that backwards, that's legalism. That's anti-gospel. Let's keep going. Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Well, as we did with verse 16, let's talk first about what this doesn't mean before we address what it does mean. Again, this is not about your body. This is not a warning about if you eat fast food, you're going to die. This is not a warning about fast food or cigars. This is not an argument for Christian CrossFit or Jesus Jazzercise or something like that. This also isn't about suicide, that if you destroy your body by killing it, then God will destroy you by condemning you. That's a butchering of the text that you'll find if you Google this verse, which is a good reminder that Google is great for a lot of things, researching restaurants, right? Looking up celebrities' net worth, finding cat memes or something like that. But it's a really bad tool if you wanna pursue an accurate knowledge of God. Suicide is a sin. The Bible absolutely addresses it. I have a lot of thoughts on it, but it just doesn't have anything to do with this passage here in 1 Corinthians. This passage is also not about the church building. It has nothing to do with putting your feet on the seats or wearing flip-flops or shorts or leaving trash in the sanctuary. It isn't saying that you should clean up after yourselves or God is going to kill you. To be fair, if you don't pick up your communion cups and your tissues, and your kids' drawings and so forth. The deacons might one day snap. That has nothing to do with this passage, though. How do I know that this passage is not about an actual physical building like this room? Well, at the time, at this time that Paul's writing this, church buildings didn't even exist. Churches met mostly in homes. And the whole context is Paul talking about a people, not a place. Remember, the image of a building is just that. It's an image. It's a Metaphor, we mentioned this last week, of the dozens and dozens of uses of the Greek word ekklesia, church, in scripture, hardly any of them refer to a building. And by hardly any, I mean absolutely none. 
None of them, not one. The word refers to an assembly or a gathering. It's about the people who gather, not the place where they gather. By the way, this is really important to recognize because again, our actions flow out of our identity. Our identity is what informs our actions. Why does the church gather for worship? Because that's who we are. We are the gathering. We are the assembly. By definition, we have to gather in order to be who we are. We are the gathering of the people of God. Lots of us realize this experientially, probably in 2020, in a way that they hadn't before. After the church is shut down for a few weeks, as we try to figure out, is COVID the next bubonic plague? And we found out that while we're grateful for technology and online services and so forth, they're a supplement at best. They are no substitute for the actual gathering of the body. So this text isn't about tattoos, it isn't about smoking, it isn't about drinking, it isn't about suicide, it isn't about desecrating a church building. What is it about? Well, bear in mind the context. Last week we saw a variety of building materials that are used in building up the body, if you remember that. Some are good, gold, silver, precious stones. Others are not so good. Remember the story of the three little pigs? Straw and hay don't make very strong building materials. But the context of our passage last week was that the difference between those who build with gold or other good materials and those who build with straw and other not so good materials wasn't that the good guy was a believer and the straw guy was an unbeliever. Both were believers in the context. The point was that all Christians are building and that we should endeavor to build what lasts, what is strong and valuable and worthwhile. So that was last week. Some guys build with good materials, some build with, uh, with uh, shoddy materials, but there's a difference between someone who builds with shoddy materials and someone who doesn't build at all, but rather destroys, actively tears down the church. To build with subpar materials is one thing, to tear it down is another entirely, and that's what this is about. By the way, this passage isn't about the universal church, Christ is really clear. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against his body and bride. The church shall never be destroyed in that sense, but that doesn't mean that a local church can't fail. In fact, many do. Local churches are divided all the time. They're quote unquote destroyed all the time. They die all the time. Thousands of churches every single year in the U.S., are closed. So I think this is talking about local churches which can be destroyed rather than the universal church which can't. But how? How does one go about destroying the church? Well, in the immediate context, Paul's addressing leaders and teachers. Remember that whole I follow Paul, I follow Apollos thing we saw a couple of weeks ago? That's the immediate context. So one of the ways that we destroy the church is by building on something other than the foundation of Christ. Remember verse 11 from last week, which says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So those who would attempt to lay some sort of other foundation other than the gospel, other than Jesus, in a sense, destroy the church. That explains why Paul is going to be so exasperated. He's so frustrated by false teachers and false teachings throughout his writings. For example, a couple of uh, examples. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven 
should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses three through four. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's so perplexed. He's so frustrated by this false gospel because he sees through the facade and he realizes the emptiness of its promises that a false gospel is no gospel. In fact, a false gospel is actually an anti-gospel. It's the opposite of good news. It's actually very bad news. We've seen this over and over as we've studied church history this semester in theological equipping, that some teachers will promote some sort of novel approach, the person and work of Christ. And it typically seems like such a small, subtle adjustment. It's just a little loose thread to pull out. But you find once you pull on it, the entire gospel unravels. You see that in Arius we talked about? He denied the deity of Christ. You see it in Pelagius, he denied the definition and necessity of grace. On and on we could go with other examples of building on a foundation other than the foundation of the gospel, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Building on a false foundation. So that's the first way that the church can be destroyed by false teachers, by wolves, building another foundation. But there's a secondary sense in which someone can quote unquote destroy the church, and this is where the application extends beyond teachers and pastors to individuals in the church. So how else can the church be destroyed? By the very sins he's been addressing in the larger context of the letter. By jealousy, by strife, by division, by selfishness, by worldly thinking, etc. Imagine, if you will, taking a sledgehammer You swing it around like Thor's Mjolnir, was that what it's called, whatever that thing's called? You just let it go in this room. And then you go and you pick it up and you do it again. And then you go and you pick it up and you do it again and you do it over and over and over again. The result will be a mess, like our old building after Snowmageddon, right? Pipes burst, just chaos everywhere. Now that image of taking a sledgehammer and just throwing it around the room, that's what gossip, and slander, and division, and jealousy, and strife, and so forth does to the church. I used to think it was an exaggerated joke or just an urban legend when I heard stories about churches splitting over the color of the carpet. But it isn't actually a joke. In fact, I was reading a list, I found it on Google, by the way. I was reading a list recently of things that churches have fought and divided over. This was pastors submitting these things, uh, probably jaded pastors. Here are a few of my favorite. Number one, the length of the pastor's beard, which I think is really funny. I think I love the idea of every week, Zach and Tim come and I take a ruler and I measure, you can't preach this week, sorry. That's the first one. Second. Arguments over serving deviled eggs. Can you imagine? Because they're deviled, guys. Or whether, whenever you bring the deviled eggs, do you bring it to a pot luck or a pot blessing or a pot providence? Or third, this is my favorite because it's just so petty that it illustrates the point well, the brand of coffee that's served. 
The best part of waking up is Folgers in your church, right? (laughs) Christians should be the least petty people in the world, and yet churches are often the hotspots for preferences, for strife, uh, presumptions, so forth. Now, don't get me wrong. There are absolutely things to fight over. There are things to argue over. Our culture has stressed unity at the expense of truth, and the result has been a church that is so anemic, so weakened, because we no longer have anything distinctive to say because we've capitulated to culture. This is why historically the church has said that unity, if possible, but truth at all costs. That already, that order, that priority is essential. Unity is a good thing, it's a virtue, but only if we're unified around another virtue, which is truth. Unity is a good thing, but only if we're unified around the best thing. The Manson family was unified. Nazis were unified. Sometimes unity isn't a virtue. So there are things to divide over. But the kinds of things that Paul is addressing in Corinth, the kind of things that most Christians fight over today aren't. And notice the warning. The one who destroys God's temple will be destroyed. This is an example of the principle of lex talionis. You might have heard this before. The law of retaliation. The punishment fits the crime. The two most famous examples probably in scripture are uh, Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Or Exodus 21, 23 through 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That eye for eye idea is lex talionis. But here in 1 Corinthians, the idea is that the one who destroys the church will be destroyed. That's the law of retaliation here. Anybody remember the story of Samson? Muscles, womanizer, great hair, that guy. Remember how he died? We pushed over the pillars of a building and he killed everyone around. He killed thousands of Philistines. But what happened to him? Well, he died along with all the Philistines. That's the image that this passage reminds me of. If you want to push against the pillars of the church, prepare to be crushed. You see, both Jewish and Greek cultures had traditions that said those who defile temples would be cursed. And Paul is playing on that cultural convention. One of my favorite details in the Michael Fagan story, the guy who broke into Buckingham, is that at the time, it was such a preposterous idea that anyone would or could break into Buckingham that there wasn't even a law against it. So he just got fined for stealing cheese and crackers and wine, and he got let go. That's not what happens to those who defile or destroy God's house. So how will those who destroy God's house be destroyed? Well, Paul doesn't say, and it really depends on what destroy means. And it's actually a very flexible word in Greek. For instance, it's often translated as corrupted or ruined. The same Greek word that's translated here as destroyed is often translated as corrupted or ruined. Let me give you a couple of examples of just from letters to the Corinthians. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three: do not be deceived, bad company ruins same word there, ruins good morals. Or 2 Corinthians 7, 2, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted, same word, corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. 
So I think there are two potential meanings when Paul writes that those who destroy the temple will be destroyed. And how you will be destroyed, I think, depends on who you are. The how is dependent on the who. For wolves, for false teachers, for non-Christians who destroy the church, the destruction in view is the most extreme use of the word, and it refers to God's eternal judgment, that God will protect his bride from his enemies and from our enemies. That's the first aspect of the admonition. But there's a second that's directed to actual Christians. For the sheep, there's not only a warning to, uh, to wolves and goats and so forth, but also a warning for the sheep. There's a warning here as well. For us, it isn't a warning of eternal judgment, but rather temporal discipline. We see hints of that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, for example, in chapter five. There's one who is egregiously, unrepentantly sinning. We'll see that when we get to chapter five. And he's removed from the congregation through the process of church discipline. He's handed over to Satan for, quote, the destruction of his flesh. And then in chapter 11, some people are abusing communion. Some people are getting drunk. Some people are just eating all the food before other people get there. Some people are paying no attention to anybody else. And Paul says, quote, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now we'll get to both of those passages soon enough, but for now it's important to realize that though we are free from the threat of condemnation, God will nevertheless not be mocked and those, uh, he will discipline those whom he Love. So this passage is a strong warning against any sort of destruction, any corruption, any division in the church, whether that's by laying another foundation, denying the gospel, or by implicitly denying the gospel in our pettiness, in our preferentiality, in our pride, in our slander, in our gossip, in our strife, in our jealousy, and on and on we go. God is holy, and thus his dwelling place is holy. And so God's people should be holy. That's what 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 is saying. So what do we do with it? I wanna mention two implications or applications of the text. The first is rather obvious. Don't be a heretic, right? Don't be a false teacher. Don't try to lay some other foundation. Don't destroy the church in that way. Don't lay some foundation other than the gospel. Don't divide the church through gossip or slander or making your preferences ultimate. So don't be a heretic. Don't be a Christian who seeks to divide the church through your pettiness. And then when you do, repent. Seek forgiveness from others. Pursue reconciliation. That's the first one. Just don't destroy the church. The second application is to remember that this text is a continuation of the idea of last week and it provides this alternative or this contrast to last week's. So the goal isn't just that we don't destroy the church, but that we would actively build it up. The goal isn't just that you avoid, for example, the goal isn't just that you avoid adultery, but that you actually love your spouse. Likewise, the goal isn't just that you would avoid the sin of destroying the church, but that you would actively engage in the virtue of building up the church, that we would edify the edifice. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that the word edifice and the word edification are related, that we would edify, that we would encourage, that we would build up the spiritual temple that is the body of the Christ. Consider the following, Romans 15, two. Let us each please his neighbor for his good. Notice this, to build him up, to edify him, to build him up, to strengthen him. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. 
So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's the negative, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So how do we do that? I wanna read one final passage, give a very quick concluding thought, and then we'll turn our attention to communion. This is from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. This is the longest exposition of what it means to build up the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see there, it's not just my job as a pastor to build up the church. It's your job as a member to build up the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I just wanna point out one little thing. We're not doing the exposition of Ephesians 4, but one little point. Notice there the emphasis on truth and love. How do you build up the church with two tools, truth and love? If the church is viewed as a building if the church is viewed as a temple, then you might think of truth being the brick or the stone which protects the edifice and love is kind of the mortar which holds it together. Or if the church is viewed as a body, that's another image of the, uh, of the church in scripture. You might think of truth as being the skeleton, provides structure and love is the muscle that moves the body. Bone without muscle is strong but immobile. Muscle without bone is just floppy feeling. Right? Both are necessary, neither is redundant. So may we not be like those who divide to destroy the church by our pride, by our presumption, by our pettiness, by our preferentiality, but rather may we be a people humble enough to be firmly committed to edifying the body, serving one another, praying for the church, loving one another by truth and love for the glory of God and for our eternal good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the gift of the church. In spite of all her messiness, all of her flaws, all of her blemishes, that you are good to us, you're faithful to us. That in spite of all of those flaws, this is still an immeasurable source of good for us. Because those flaws end up sanctifying us as iron sharpens iron. So I pray that you would awaken in us a deep and abiding love, not only for your son, but also for his body and bride. And by extension, that you would awaken in us a love for each other, that we might love one another enough to speak the truth to one another, to not be petty, to not be divisive, to not be preferential, to not exalt our own preferences over others, but rather to lay down our rights 
so that we might love and serve one another and in that way we might be strengthened. We love you. We're grateful for your love for us. Pray that you would help us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.